We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being produced. We respectfully acknowledge the unceded territory of the Wurundjeri people and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. Welcome back to Undercover. You're listening to episode 6 and I'm your presenter, Lillian Bernhardt. Today we will hear from our reporters Zach Wheeler, Bridget Novak and Lauren Formica as they explore the experiences of Australians with Ukrainian heritage during the Russian invasion, the protection of one of Australia's most famous beaches and the dangers of online dating. It's been over three months now, and the largest conflict since World War II continues to rage on. Russia invaded Ukraine, and thousands of people have died. In Australia, those with Ukrainian heritage are split between worlds. Zach Wheeler reports. Disclaimer. The interviews included in this story were recorded in April 2022 and reflect the conflict at that time with the facts available. On February 24, 2022, following weeks of tension, Russian troops breached Ukraine's border as the world watched on. Melburnians were equally in awe of what we were all witnessing. It didn't sound too good on TV, didn't it? I'd say that war's not really a relevant thing anymore. It should be redundant and left in the previous century. It's a humanitarian crisis. You're asking a first world baby from a a first world country? The best answer you're going to get is from a... um, a third world baby from a third world country, my friend. I'll give you some fluffed up answer that isn't... And while I'd like to clarify that Ukraine is not a third world country, rather a developing nation, I took his suggestion to heart. Days before the invasion, protests against Russian aggression were held across Australia's major cities. In Melbourne, Liana Slepetsky, president of the Noble Park chapter of the Association of Ukrainians in Victoria, was one of the day's organisers. Everything is, at the moment, geared towards helping the Ukrainians who have recently arrived. Our organisation is a not-for-profit and we don't have a lot of funding. And amongst all that, I guess somewhere I have to stop and rest and also look after my mental health and that of my family and friends as well. I guess over this last week I've become incredibly disillusioned, questioning what kind of world we are living in at the moment. T-shirts with Stop Putin Your Hands on Ukraine emblazed on the chest were strewn across the dinner table and Ukrainian flags hung from the fence when I arrived. There was a Putin voodoo doll on the doormat. Liana apologised for the mess as I entered before promptly ushering me back towards the front door. I hadn't wiped my feet before entering, but Liana didn't care if my shoes were dirty. She only wanted me to grind the pins into little Putin before we started to discuss the invasion. I'm finding it incredibly difficult to reconcile the good part of me as a human being with this secreted hatred that's coming out now. And, I mean, compared to what my family is going through in Ukraine and friends are going through in Ukraine, I don't actually have the right to even question how I'm feeling. Liana's story wasn't unique. She told me as much as we discussed the hardships felt by many in her community centre. I consulted with professionals to understand how the brain copes with significant stress. Um, My name's Joanna Tedeschi. I'm a psychologist and my area of interest is trauma-related disorders and dissociation. 
Uh, so my name is Luke Lawrence. I'm a registered psychologist and I have a specific interest in working with any experiences of trauma. Everybody comes to a psychologist and says, everything's sort of fine. And then you scratch the surface and then you find out that actually a lot of things aren't fine. That's called minimization and even sometimes a bit of denial. And I think trauma affects every part of the brain. It can actually result in someone experiencing a wide range of issues, whether it's anxiety, depression, stress and burnout, dissociation, overwhelm, and a number of other things. This is an experience that's common to anyone who's really been plonked from one culture into another. So all these people going through these individual experiences through their childhoods and multiple generations of being under threat, for example, like the Ukrainians, generations remember that. The Noble Park Community Centre welcomed me with open arms to share their story over a traditional lunch of homemade bread, butter and salamis with toppings of horseradish. Over the course of several hours I became acquainted with Ukraine's history and their generations of threat. I'm Orisia Stefan. I'm the principal of the Ukrainian Community School at Noble Park. My parents were deported as a result of um, communist policies. This was 1947. To most of the world, Second World War had finished. Um, but for Ukrainians, it was still going on. Against the Nazis, then against the Soviets, and then it was the Polish. And then the deportation came. Um, so in 1946, the Soviet army was deporting people into the Soviet Union. In 1947, in April, the deportation started uh, into the north of Poland. And when we migrated to Australia, and back in 1966, mum had this fear of anybody in uniform, and it just stayed with her. Uh, and now uh, I just can't not care. Putting all this into context, I began to reflect on what else Liana had told me about her own journey within Australia. I also have this personal issue with not feeling fully Australian. When I'm in Australia, when I go to Ukraine, I don't feel fully Ukrainian. It's kind of these two worlds that I live in. When this started, I remember waking up and looking out the window and feeling guilty that I was enjoying the sun, knowing that my family uh, slept the night in a bunker. With Ukrainian Easter approaching, there's a real grey cloud hanging over all of us because we've heard that Russia's going to attack over Easter. Russians say they are people of God, they're, they're, they're Christian. How can you even do that? Maybe you should interview some Russians and just, I don't know. I want to hear that. Yes, I'd be interested to see what the, the lay Russian thinks about all of this. And the Russian I did talk to was also experiencing pain stemming from the ripples of a conflict on the other side of the world, albeit from a different perspective. My full name is Alexandra Milshina, and I was born in Minsk, in Belarus. I, at the, when it first started, I received a lot of hostility because it's quite open and vocalised with my opinion about it. So it got to the point where, you know, we engage in these conversations and I'd obviously tell my, my truth and then people would just not want to speak to me again because they'd look at me as, oh, you're for the war. I couldn't really be myself and voice my own freedom of speech. Um, so I'd just stop it talking. Even friends that I've grown up with here don't want to hear or they reciprocate with anger, aggression, um, racism. With nobody knowing exactly how the conflict will end, memories of the past, weighted against visions of the future, ferment an uneasy optimism in the air. 
So when I look into the future, I, 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 I don't know what it holds. I don't know what it means. I just don't know. I'll be turning 55 in a couple of weeks' time and my birthday present will be collecting money for the territorial defence in Kosiv where my family live. That's, yeah, that's all I want to do. So, I don't know, ask me in six months' time. <laughs> Viewer discretion. If any of the themes from this story have affected you. Seek out support. The first place I would go would be Beyond Blue, call Lifeline if it is a crisis and triple zero if it's an emergency. And there's other websites as well, such as the Black Dog Institute and Headspace that had a lot of information about you know, self-care, feeling distress at times like that. Victoria's Great Ocean Road is known for its natural beauty, panoramic views of the ocean are framed by rugged rock faces, and native wildlife isn't hard to spot. Along the way, a distinctive beach sits tucked in by high cliffs, creating an amphitheatre effect. Bridget Novak explored the broom of this beach, one of Australia's most famous, and how it's been kept uncorrupted despite decades of large crowds and economic appeal. As part of this story, I visited the unceded territory of the Wadawurrung people and would like to acknowledge them as the traditional owners of the land. We pay our respects to their ancestors and elders, past, present and emerging. Have you ever heard of a world-class wave? I hadn't, not until I heard it in the context of a popular surfing destination less than an hour and a half's drive from Melbourne's CBD. About a 10-minute drive from the proclaimed surf town of Torquay, Bells Beach boasts sought-after waves due to its natural structures. Prime breaks on either sides of the beach are said to occur at low tide thanks to its reefs. Gordon Stammers, a long-term SANE member, that's surfers appreciating the natural environment, explains that an ocean corridor plays a role in it too. There's a corridor from the Southern Ocean which sends the waves to Bells and it sends it up in a special way. I mean, there's a couple of different directions the swell can come from, but it sends in some of the best big waves in the world and it has international significance in that perspective that it has quality waves. SANE is a local conservationist organisation with the motto Don't destroy what you came to enjoy. Along with Gordon, I spoke with Chris Liebart about their experiences as seasoned surfers concerned with the environment. Surfing yourself, you know, once you get into it, it just integrates you into all aspects of life. You travel, you meet people everywhere, you pit yourself against nature, you find out what your strengths and weaknesses are through it. It's just like pretty much everything. Paul Hart, a Janjuk local and longtime surfer, also speaks wholeheartedly of surfing. Surfing is really therapeutic and so immersing yourself in the ocean is, I think, what keeps bringing us back there. I really feel at home down there as much as I do at home here. But vast population densities to any natural area, such as Bells in this instance, is going to have pitfalls. We've been at a lot of political battles with the council and the government about what should happen out there over the years. It certainly has a very destructive side to it as well. A lot of destruction comes from the human footprint of surfing. Surfers have hit the waves down at Bells since the 1930s, but it wasn't until the 1960s that the site became massively popular among surfers from all over. You might have already heard of it from the annual surfing competition, now known as the Rip Curl Pro, held there since 1961. But let's go back. Initially, to even get to Bells, surfers would have to paddle around from elsewhere. 
and then a road was put in by a, a couple of surfers, the early surfers back in the um, 50s and 60s, and um, that was just a dirt road, and then the official road was put in by the council, and, and then it officially became a surfing reserve in 1971. And not just any surfing reserve, in fact, the world's first surfing reserve. Terms for the site interchange, so it's sometimes mentioned as a recreation reserve, other times a wave reserve. Either way, the listing of the site as a surfing recreation reserve means a site is recognised as a place of value. That can be economic via competition revenue and tourism to the area, or it can be of spiritual value, or even just because the waves are so great. And that equates to a degree of protection. As a reserve, it's, it has achieved its function, I think. People can recognise it on a global sense and understand that it's more than just a, a recall uh, event once a year. It's, it's actually an iconic place that people oh, use yeah. yearly and treat it with respect and treat it as the reserve has been set up to do. According to a report released earlier this year, listing a site as a surfing reserve can coincide with conservation efforts. Paul reflects on the efforts of SANE. They really kicked off a lot of work through the reserve and we all supported them. The board riding clubs got behind them. Gordon and Chris mentioned Graham Stockton, a horticulturalist who got SANE involved in revegetation. He immediately got SANE organised into uh, replanting, you know, all the horticultural side of it and what we could do. Graham personally goes and collects the seed from all the endemic species in the area, propagates it and we plant it straight back into where it came from. Yeah, the rest history, I suppose, we've been there working every month since 1988. Over the years, the popularity of Bells Beach meant it faced a growing threat of overpopulation, and there are problems that come with that, including, but not limited to, pollution, friction between surfers and tourists, and degradation. The local council established a task force in 2014 to look into management techniques. Paul was a part of it. I could see it as getting really used and abused. They had this master plan. It took about an hour for them to present it and after that we were kind of in shock and we were in shock that they were going to turn the reserve into a theme park without roller coasters. <laughs> At the conclusion of the task force review, the 2015 to 2025 Bells Beach management plan stated, and I quote, the message from most was loud and clear, keep Bells as it is, a natural place. So what are the plans for the future? I know we're pushing for national heritage listing and yes. we've been trying to do that for years and, and that's that, the next step for us. And that'll yeah. give it a lot more protection than what it has yeah. at the moment. Although, in a broader sense, humankind right now is facing a large and looming threat in climate change that threatens to alter the way we experience the world around us. We see a lot of the uh, beaches disappearing down here. I've been here for 35, 40 years and I've seen so much erosion of some of our main beaches. We're not living a sustainable trajectory at the moment. I've got children and they're concerned about it. They wonder about their future and how it's going to be. So those things are a worry. Look at what's happening in the world. You realise that Mother Nature, the environment is in charge, you know. The climate is in charge. So we uh, deal with it and start the work with it. We get educated about it. This has been Bridget Novak for Undercover. In recent years, and with the global pandemic shifting the way we communicate, online dating has taken the world by storm. According to a recent Relationships Australia survey, approximately 60% of Australians use dating apps and online websites, and 25% of Australians have found their partner online. Despite this, Online dating does not come without its challenges. Lauren Formica explores the world of online dating and the dangers it poses to women today. I felt unsafe. He was nothing like he portrayed online. He felt so forceful and aggressive. I'm thankful that I agreed to meet in public. 
that was the voice of a young woman named Anna. Anna chose not to use her real name for this story, but she did want to speak about her experience to help other people using online dating apps. Like many women out there, Anna was subject to uncomfortable behaviour at the hands of the men she met online. Anna matched and started chatting to a man on Tinder who seemed to have the same interests and connections as her. She decided to go on a date with him, however things began to escalate quickly. An Australian Metropolitan Clinical Forensic Service identified that 14% of alleged sexual assaults were facilitated following a dating app meeting. All complainants were female, mostly under the age of 30 years. All alleged a single male perpetrator and in over half of the cases, the complainant was impaired. In all cases, the alleged incident occurred at the first face-to-face meeting. More than half of the incidents occurred at the alleged perpetrator's private residence. Studies found that people share information with others too easily when they are dating online, with a quarter of people admitting that they share their full name publicly on their dating profile. One in 10 have shared their home address, and the same number have shared naked photos of themselves this way, exposing them to risk. Even though lying is one of the most hated aspects of online dating, 57% of online daters lie to each other, faking a range of attributes such as their names, marital status, location and appearance. I spoke to another female who wishes to remain anonymous. She'd matched with who she believed to be a male, exchanging messages and forming a connection. However, much to her surprise, the person she was speaking to was actually a female. Well, there was this one on on Tinder. So I basically, I matched with this guy I thought was super cute and like seemed like he had a good personality. Um, And then he added me on like on Snapchat and then I noticed the username was kind of different. Like it was like a girly name and I was thinking, and I go us and they were just like, oh no, like it's just, I just use this, I was just using this name, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, okay, I don't know how I was so blind to it. And then I got sent a video of a naked girl. (laughs) And I was like, wait, like, I thought your name was like, Jimmy or whatever. And it was just, it was a girl pretending to be a guy, like catfishing me. And And I I specifically said on my profile, like, I am, I am straight. And yeah, this person was trying to like still send, was still sending me pictures, like unsolicited pictures, and would like, would continue to like message me even though I ignored the messages for a while. It was just really creepy. Unfortunately, incidences like these aren't uncommon. Twenty-four percent of online dating users pretend to be the opposite gender when creating their fake identity. Seventy-three percent use photos of someone else rather than real pictures of themselves, and fifty-four percent of people who engage in online dating feel that the information in potential mates' profiles is false. I spoke to Sarah Liversidge, who had been using online dating apps on and off for the last ten years. First, you you match with someone, say you know, on Tinder, for example, and you know the first thing they start talking about is graphic sex. But I did find younger guys would really go straight to, you know, quite graphic sex, stuff that I just wouldn't, you know, talk about. And I'm not a prude uh, that made me think, oh, I just, there's no, people aren't getting taught kind of etiquette around this. As a woman, I don't feel 
yeah, I, it's it's really uncomfortable. I don't want to be seen as someone that's just here to, you know, perform sexual acts on you. Fortunately for Sarah, she had friends who were also on dating apps. Yes, and I had men who uh, were obviously creepy, uh, who I got a really bad vibe from, and through my friends and I were both online dating at the same time. And we would show each other pictures, um, you know, and go, oh, hey, I matched with this guy, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, occasionally I'd get a friend go, oh, no, 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 he's this. I went on a date with him and I felt really unsafe. And so, you know, I was more relying on other people around me uh, to kind of provide me with that information. Yeah, it did certainly feel unsafe at times and, and like a bit of the Wild West, like you're not really sure and I felt like I was on my my own a lot of the time. However, psychologist Sabina Reed said online dating has the capacity to be empowering for people, believing that a positive approach for all parties is the key to success. I think online dating um, has the capacity to be empowering depending on how how women approach it and how men approach it. Um, in many ways, I like to think about humans as opposed to genders. And um, dating can impact us in different ways. And I think online dating, of course, has its own um, opportunities and limitations underpinned by that, that process. So if a woman is clear about her boundaries, about her needs, then it could be a very empowering experience. On the other hand, if she feels like this is the only option that she's got left, or she's feeling um, that really all she wants is a relationship and this is the, the only pathway that will get her there, then I think she will feel less empowered. And really the differential, differential there is the way she's thinking and approaching it, as opposed to the process of dating itself. A reminder that there are sexual assault support services out there, such as 1800RESPECT and Lifeline on 131114. This has been Lauren Formica for Undercover. This was Lillian Bernhardt presenting for Undercover. I'd like to thank our talented reporters for today's stories and our episode producer, Hugh Pearson. In addition, I'd like to thank our executive producers, Tito Ambio and Bernadette Nunn. Their consistent support is what has made this podcast possible. Thank you for listening to Undercover and make sure you tune in next week for episode seven.